so to kind of catch us up to speed, uh, what's happened in the sort of the backstory of Nehemiah is that 140 years before this book was written, 140 years before Nehemiah was written, what happened is the Babylonians, uh, who were the enemies of God's people, they came and they attacked and they destroyed the walls uh, that surrounded the city of God, the walls that surrounded Jerusalem, and they burned down their gates. And so what ended up happening is that the temple where God's people worshipped, the temple got destroyed too. The temple got destroyed and the people of God were scattered. And as a result, the reputation of God and his name uh, was like not so great. And over a century later, this guy named Nehemiah, uh, he's working for the Persian king, uh, kind of his right-hand man. And Nehemiah, he hears about the destruction of those walls. And even though like it happened 140 years earlier, and it was already widely known uh, by everybody for like over a century, uh, this news, this news hits him in a new way. And so God stirs in Nehemiah's heart. He stirs in Nehemiah's heart and gives him this new burden. He stirs in Nehemiah's heart this sadness and this brokenness. And what we saw is that Nehemiah, then he weeps, he mourns, and he prays. And then he starts leading a group of people to basically rebuild, re-strengthen, re-fortify the city of God. And the reason that Nehemiah, God has called Nehemiah to do this is for two things to happen. It's so that God's people can once again worship him faithfully in the temple, but also so that God's people can be also a faithful witness to who God is. So they're, they're, they're rebuilding the wall so that they could uh, faithfully worship God again and also be a faithful witness to the surrounding community. And what we've been talking about in these last few weeks is how just in the way, same way that God gave Nehemiah a new spiritual burden for Jerusalem, for many of us in this young church, God has given us a new spiritual burden too. He's given us this new spiritual burden for this community that we live in. And just like the walls in the city were broken and devastated back then, like there are things in our lives and in our churches and in our families and in our community that are broken too. And I mentioned early on how, you know, I, I had lunch uh, a couple months back with some, some local pastors in the area. And uh, these local pastors, they were, they were concerned about the state of, of the church in our community. Because um, a lot of churches, they're either closing down, um, like left and right, or they're just, just not healthy churches. Um, and sometimes we sort of fall into this way of thinking that, you know, just because things have been broken for a while, that that's just the way things are going to be. That's just the way that things are supposed to be. Or just because there aren't enough churches to reach every family in South Orange County, like that's just the way that things are supposed to be. Uh, but Nehemiah, he had the spiritual burden for the mission of God in his community. And we have a spiritual burden for the mission of God in our community. A new spiritual burden, which includes making disciples through the mission of church planting. And so that's sort of our backdrop, right? That's our backdrop. And with that as our 
backdrop in Nehemiah chapter 6 as our text that we're going to dig into this morning. We're going to look at specifically the topic of fear. We're going to look at the topic of fear, and we know that fear is something that drives so much of life, right? Like, they teach, you in, they teach you in sales, like, to appeal to people's greatest fears. Or in politics, you see people appealing to our greatest fears. Uh, and what we're going to look at uh, is specifically uh, the, the fear of man, the fear of man. And we're going to look at three features in this story. We're going to first look at the conspiracy uh, of Nehemiah's enemies against him. We're going to look at the crippling power of the fear of man. Uh, and then we're going to lastly look at the freedom that we have in the fear of God. And the good news is that if you don't have... Uh, that you don't have to fear men when you have a healthy fear of the Lord. And so let's look at that first point, the conspiracy against Nehemiah. The conspiracy against Nehemiah. And what we see here is that the fear of man is crippling. We see in chapter 6 this conspiracy breaks out against him. This conspiracy breaks out against Nehemiah and that we see that he can either choose to be crippled by it or to conquer it. Read verse 1 with me. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Now when Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, then Sambalat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Man, it's like Nehemiah can't get a break, right? Like we've been reading for these last two chapters that that people are are this opposition is keeps coming against Nehemiah. And you know, a few weeks ago we talked about the reality of opposition and how when you're pushing forward on the mission of God, like anytime you're pushing forward on the mission of God, you're always going to get pushed back through opposition and through challenges. And the reason that that happens is because we have a very real spiritual enemy who just relentlessly tries to hinder the work of God. He lays on the heat when you have your eyes on the mission of God, when you're postured on God's mission, when you're postured on worshiping him faithfully and being a faithful witness of him. The heat lays on. My, my, my son, Haddon, he's, he's, he's eight months old. Which is another way of saying that he's officially a mover now, right? Like he moves all over the place. Like he is no longer confined to whatever location I set him down on. He's not like a full-on crawler yet, but like he worm crawls. You know, kind of like he does the worm like all over the place. It used to be that wherever I put him down, like he pretty much just stayed in that sort of general area, right? Like only able to roll left or roll right. But now, now that he's eight months old, like he's basically like breakdancing all across the room, right? Like you just can't keep him still. And my, my daughter, Geneva, she's two years old, and so sometimes she leaves these toys laying around that, that are like dangerously small for my son to get his hands on. And so when she's playing and when I see Haddon like inching himself towards her like small toy stash, like I try to stop him. Right? When I see him moving towards that, I try to stop him. I come in and I get in his way. I hinder his mission. I'm his opposition at that point. You see, before he could move around like that, he was of no concern to me. Like him moving around was no concern to me. But now that he can move around, especially when his eyes are on the prize, when he's moving towards that goal, then suddenly, like, I gotta play defense, right? And see, we have a spiritual enemy that's seeking to thwart the mission of God's people. 
See, before any of us got saved, we were really of not much concern to this enemy. But now, if you're a follower of Jesus, then all of a sudden he becomes more interested in you. He becomes wise to you. And when churches are planted and when churches are making disciples, then he plays defense. He lays on the heat. You see, when God pushes forward through his people to bring truth, to bring goodness, to bring beauty into the world, this enemy pushes back by bringing lies, evil, and decay. We can count on it. The Bible says that that's what's going to happen. The good news is that we're not under the enemy's rule. We're not under his rule. We're under Jesus' rule. But we can still count on the enemy trying to thwart the mission of the church. That's why Peter warns us in 1 Peter chapter 5, Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded, he says. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. He's relentless. You see, and that's what's happening at this point in Nehemiah's story. That's what's been happening in the last few chapters and is still happening in chapter 6. You see, order now is restored among the Jews. Nehemiah has turned his attention again to completing the wall, to strengthening God's city and God's people. And now they're coming up to this special day, the special day of completing the walls, hanging up the gates, kind of like hanging the doors on a finished home right? Like it's a special day that they're approaching. It's this last step. And as soon as this last step is done, then the people could start moving back in. They can start settling down. They can start worshiping God again and be a witness to him, to the world. And so the wall's almost complete, but this pattern of opposition is not broken. It continues. You see, there will be a final effort that we see in, in, in this chapter on the opposition's part to, to divert Nehemiah, to divert Nehemiah and sort of like halt the construction by, by harming him, by intimidating him, and by trying to, trying to discredit him. Sambalit and Tobiah, uh, we read about them in verse 1. You might recognize them from a couple chapters ago, right? Like these guys up to this point have been like a total pill to Nehemiah. Uh, they've just been relentlessly up against him. And now they've got this other guy we see in the beginning of the chapter, this guy named Geshem, who joins in. With a name like Geshem, I mean, it just sounds like a bad guy, right? This sounds like somebody who's not fun to hang around. These guys, these three guys, are, they're just relentless. They're closing in to oppress, to, to mock, to jest, to hate on Nehemiah. And like some old historic theologian has said, and we've said it before, it's basically like haters are going to hate. Right? Like, haters are hating. That's just just, just, this continued uh, pattern that we we see. You see, at first, they appeared to be friendly. At first, these three guys, they appear to be friendly. They send this message to Nehemiah, and they say, Hey, come, let us meet together. Let's meet together. Let's hang. Like, let's, 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 let's be one together. Let's be in unity with each other. But Nehemiah is on to them. He says, But they intended to do me harm. He knew that this was a diversion tactic. And look at how he responds to them in verse 3. In verse 3 and 4, he says, I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? You see, at first, he kind of sounds rude, right? At first, he kind of sounds rude, like, hey, look, I'm too busy for you. I've got some better stuff going on. But on the one hand, it's like he, he, kinda, he knows what they're really up to. you got to remember that. He knows what they're really up to. And on the other hand, 
I mean, this guy is rebuilding the city of God. He's kind of busy, right? He's kind of, he really is kind of busy. He knows that they're trying to divert him, that they're trying to distract him. But instead of firing back at them and calling, calling them out on their scheming, he says, look, I need to stick to my priorities. I have great work to do. He says, I am doing great work. I am doing great work. I want you to, to stop and think about that statement. I am doing great work. You see, if you remember, just months earlier, just six months earlier, Nehemiah, he was one of the most influential people in the world's strongest nation at the time. He was one of the most influential people in the world's strongest nation. He was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes, which means that he was the most trusted guy on the king's cabinet. He was a total beast on the king's guard. He had a very coveted role. He got to eat and drink like a king by nature of being a cupbearer. He got to eat and drink like a king. He had his own chamber. He had his own guards. He had his own suite up in the castle. Guys would have killed to have Nehemiah's old job that he had just months ago. And here he says, I am doing a great work. It's wild, right? Like he left that great position. He's doing a construction project and he says, I am doing a great work. Totally wild. Like Nehemiah, he's not sleeping in a castle anymore. He's living in a city that's in ruins. They're just rebuilding it right now. He's working around the clock. He's not sleeping in his own bed. He's not changing his clothes. He's always on high alert because of the enemies that are closing in. Remember Nehemiah 4? It says he had his tool in one hand and his weapon in the other because he had to always be on high alert. There's like a military state. He's dealing with all kinds of mockers and jesters and haters and challenges and opposition. People are complaining. They're tired. They're discouraged. They're divided. And in the midst of all of that, he says, this is great work that I do. I am doing a great work. Now, why is that a great work? Why is that a great work? Why is that better than living like a king like he was earlier? It's because he was doing the work of God. He was doing the thing that God had shaped him, that God had called him to do. Look, not every Christian is called to be a vocational full-time leader like Nehemiah or like a pastor But every Christian is called to daily follow him, to daily follow God, to follow Jesus, to worship him, to grow in his community, the church, and to engage on his mission in the world. And so the enemy will try and put people and circumstances in your way to distract you from following Jesus faithfully. And it's going to happen time and time again. And you got to remember that No, it's like the mission of God, faithfulness to Jesus, that is great work. Look how Nehemiah responds to this, their repeated attack in verse 4. He says, they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. And so we see here that Nehemiah is actually living out an important Christian life principle. It's the principle of persistence. Persistence. Persistence in faithfulness. Persistence in worship, persistence in community, persistence in mission. He's like, I have great work to do. Read on with me now in verse 5. It says, 
In the same way, Sambalat, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel, and that is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah, and now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him, saying, "No such things as you have been, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done." And then he prays, "But now, O God, strengthen my hands." And so you see here several times in this chapter, they just keep laying on the diversions. Several times in this chapter, they try to get him off the mission. They try to distract him. They're slandering him. They're spreading rumors about him. But Nehemiah, he had a singular focus. He had a singular focus of glorifying God through obedience to his mission. You see, chances are you'll face like similar distractions like Nehemiah did. You'll face similar distractions. Could be an, a personal enemy, kind of, kind of like, uh, like it was for Nehemiah. Uh, could be friends that you have. Could be family. Could be like your own flesh, like your own sinful desires. Could just be the busyness of life in South Orange County. Keeping up with the Joneses. But the only way to survive When this kind of thing is coming, and we've been seeing this repeatedly throughout the book of Nehemiah, the only way to survive is by running to God in prayer the way that Nehemiah did. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. And in verse 15, down in verse 15, we hear the great news. It says, So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. Took them, how long did it take? 52 days, 52 days to rebuild this wall. How long have the walls been been destroyed and in ruins? 141 years. So they've been in ruins for 141 years, and it takes them 52 days to rebuild it. The reason that Nehemiah and the people were able to do that when others had failed time and time again for over a century is because they were prayed up, they were on mission, and God was the one who commissioned them. God was the one who called them to do his work. You see, it ultimately wasn't their work, it was his work. This was God's wall, and these were God's people. This was God's city, this was God's plan, and it was his purpose that was his plan that was unfolding right before their eyes. You see, so the wall is finished. Now, in verse 15, the wall is finished. The people are completely just spent. They're exhausted, but they're celebrating. They're celebrating. And the hordes of critics and haters are finally silenced, right? No, actually, all of them except one, Tobiah in verse 17. Look, read it on the screen with me. It says in verse 17, Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, and Tobiah sent letters to, to make me afraid. Uh, you see, Tobiah, is, he's, he's an enemy of Nehemiah since chapter 1, right? 
Like we see him, he's been an enemy since chapter 1. And what you'll even see is that all the way through chapter 13, he continues to be an enemy to Nehemiah. And the point is that most of us will have critics and opponents and opposition in our lives that will just never go away. Will just never go away. And sometimes the people that should be for you the most are the ones that tend to be against you. Sometimes it's friends and families that get away, get in the way and try to divert you from the mission that God's called you to. You see, Tobiah was that kind of guy. He was relentless. Nehemiah had critics when he was doing God's work. Like they taunted and they said, look, you'll never get it done. You'll never finish this wall. And then the wall was done. And guess what? He still had critics. And that'll happen to us too. Like we'll still have critics. And that brings us to my next point, which is the power of the fear of man. The power of the fear of man. And look, you have two options when you're faced with criticism. Two options whenever you're faced with criticism. You can either fear God or you can fear man. Few things can get a firmer grip on the human heart than the fear of man. Ed Welch, he's a, he's a biblical counselor with this organization called the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation. Uh, and Ed Welch, this, he's a brilliant biblical counselor. He has this really helpful definition on the fear of man. Uh, it'll be up on the screen for you. He says, the fear of man can be summarized in this way. We basically just replace God with people. That's the fear of man. We replace God with people. You see, instead of a biblically guided fear of the Lord, we fear others. When we were in our teens, this is called peer pressure. When we are older, it is called people-pleasing. Recently, it has been called codependency. But with all these labels in mind, we can spot the fear of man everywhere. You see, under this definition, I could probably say like we're, we're all guilty in some respect, Right? Like every single one of us. Like you can fear man in, in two ways. Like under this definition, we're all guilty, but, but you can really fear man in two ways by either, on the one hand, buckling under those, against, under those that are against you, buckling under the pressure of those who are against you, kind of like what happened to Nehemiah, where they, they said, you know, you'll never succeed. Um, or on the other hand, by catering to those that are around you, like, like hanging with the wrong crowd. You know, um, and letting them influence you. Um, does that make sense? Like, uh, here's a helpful definition um, um, that, that I tell people sometimes on, on understanding this concept of fear, specifically in terms of like the fear of man and the fear of God. Um, see, fear is not just something some, doesn't just mean that you're frightened about something. It doesn't just mean that you're frightened and scared about something. Like when you fear something, basically what you're doing is you're acknowledging its power over you. You're giving credence to the power that this thing has over you. And so like, you know, little kids are afraid of like spiders and they're afraid of the dark and afraid of monsters or clowns or whatever, right? And you get older and then you're afraid of public speaking or talking to pretty girls, you know? Like it's, and basically in all of these situations... Like what you're saying uh, by having those, those fears is, look, this, this thing, that situation, this object, this person, that thing has power over me. As a 
a real power over me. Now, look, that, that power may be, might not even be real, right? Like kind of having afraid of the dark or being afraid of the shadows. Like there not, might be anything real behind that fear. But when you, when a little child is afraid of the dark, like what they're saying, what's happening is they're saying, look, this darkness, these shadows, they have power over me that's just like crippling, right? Like they have a, they have a power over me. And see, here's what the fear of man is. The fear of man is when you, you see people and the way that they respond to you and your relationship with them and, and you let them have a power over you that just allows them to define who you are, define your identity, what your values are, what your beliefs are, what your behavior is. See, the fear of man is absolute slavery. It's slavery. It diverts us from our mission that God has called us to, to glorify God, and instead it glorifies others. It diverts us from our mission to glorify God, and it glorifies others. Instead, it dictates our values. It dictates our yearnings, the yearnings of our hearts. And because of it, because of it, because of the fear of man, then we start to exalt the opinions of others rather than the word of God. We start to exalt the opinions of others, and we spend ridiculous amounts of time and energy and resources trying to establish ourselves as worthy in front of them trying to establish ourselves as pitiful little gods in our narrow little worlds. What's the remedy for that? What's the remedy for the fear of man? Uh, You actually read about it in Proverbs 29. Proverbs 29, verse 25, it says, The fear of man lays a snare. It's out to get you. It's out to kill you. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. You see, any time that you see Lord capitalized in the Old Testament, you know that that's specifically talking about God's name to his people, Yahweh. In other words, he's the great I am, which is another way of saying he's just the God who is. He's the God who reigns supreme. And so the fear of man is the opposite of, another way to say this is the fear of man is the opposite of the fear of the Lord. You see, because fear of man is nothing less than an outright rejection of his lordship. And sometimes, like when we think of this concept of the fear of God, we think like, man, that's, that's controversial, right? Like, like, are we really supposed to like fear God? Like, how do we make sense of that? Um, like, like, what, like, what, what does that, what does that mean? Uh, you know, but back in the day, it used to be a, uh, it used to be a, um, like a compliment to call somebody like a God-fearing person. But now, like in our current cultural context, it, it kind of lands odd on our ears, doesn't it? Like, what do you mean fear God? Like, God, doesn't God love us? Um, if, especially if you're a Christian. But remember, if we're defining fear as basically acknowledging the massive power that something has over you, uh, really, the only one who's worthy of that kind of fear uh, is, is God himself. But the thing is, God, who's worthy of reverential fear, he's a God uh, who, who loves. He's a God who shows grace and mercy. Uh, and so actually, when we have that picture of the fear of the Lord, when we have that picture of God's holiness, of his, the greatness of his majesty and of his reign, uh, the supremeness of his being, then that makes his love and his grace and his mercy really all the more beautiful, all the more amazing. 
You see, the fear of man is the opposite of the fear of the Lord because it just outright rejects the fact that God is Lord. And you're giving credence to, you're acknowledging the power of these people over here when really the only person who's worthy of that is the Lord God Almighty. You see, and when you fear men, when you fear men and not God, then you'll do things out of impure motives. You'll say things that you don't mean. You'll cross moral boundaries that you should not cross. And that brings us to our last point, which is the freedom that we have in the fear of God. You see, when we fear, again, we acknowledge the power that something has over us. And when we fear God and acknowledge His greatness, His majesty, His holiness, His otherness, His worthiness, when we acknowledge that, then all these other fears fade away. And we're just in awe before Him. You see, the fear of God, that's what Nehemiah is actually turning through throughout this whole book. The fear of the Lord is actually what's keeping Nehemiah grounded in who God's called him to do. We saw that in chapter 1 when he's praying. Chapter 1, verse 11, when he says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. You see, Nehemiah prayed that way because people who follow God are people who make much of Him. People who honor Him as holy. People who fear Him in the biblical sense. That's the core of their identity is they acknowledge that they, they know who God is. And they know who God is and who they're not. You know, they don't know that they're not him and that he is God Almighty. And then last week when he when when we saw Nehemiah chapter five, when he's correcting the division and the disunity in the church. Remember that in verse nine, uh, he said the thing he's, that you are doing. He's saying this to the people causing the division. He says the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? You see, Nehemiah, again, he's peeling back to the fear of the Lord. He says, look, because if you honor God as holy, if you acknowledge the greatness of His power and His love, if you honor Him in that way, then you will live honorably. You'll treat others with dignity because they're made in the image of God. And when later in that chapter, when he talked about how, you know, he didn't steal from other people the way that some past governors did, in verse 15 he says, look, the reason I didn't do that, I did not do so because of the fear of God. You see, the fear of the Lord was a pillar in Nehemiah's life. He always had a, a vision for God's greatness, for His power and worthiness. And that's why now he prays to that God, to that great God. And he says, now, O oh God, strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands. You see, this God is the only one who has the worth and, and the power to strengthen his hands. This God is the mighty one. He's the only one who can strengthen his hands when he's feeling the pressure from the outside. You see, that's another way of saying, that prayer is another way of saying that, like, God, I, I, I have a healthy fear of the Lord. He's acknowledging his holiness, his worthiness, and then he's watching. He knows that when he does that, that his other fears will fade away. 
You see, when we have a right fear of God, then we acknowledge the reality of His Lordship, not others. We know that He has right power over us, and those people out there criticizing us don't. Our hope is not in their approval. Our hope is in God's greatness. And that is our hope when we face the same kind of hostility. Romans 8 asks the question, If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Who can make a charge against God's elect, against God's people? You see, that's another way of telling us, like, if the God of the universe is for you, and he's proven that with the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, if the God of the universe is for you, then who on this tiny little planet can be against you? Nehemiah, he understood this. He understood this. You see, his, single, his singleness of purpose and loyalty to God alone served as a shield for Nehemiah in this final showdown against his critics. You see, the story continues, and Nehemiah maintains this, this vision of God's greatness. It's his, his foundation. This main conflict, uh, it, it continues, and eventually it resolves, and then God compels Nehemiah to now register the people in a clear and orderly manner uh, in the rest of the, in the, in the beginning of chapter 7. It's basically like a glorified roll call, right? Like, because the purpose of coming to Jerusalem was to repopulate Jerusalem. And so he has this glorified roll call. Uh, and what we love about Nehemiah is that even though he completed the task of the wall and he surveyed the condition of his critics, he still continues on the work that God called him to do. He still continues on. You see, at this point, uh, the book transitions from dealing with things like rocks and stones and walls and gates to now dealing with like building up the people, investing into and building up the people. Read the first few verses of chapter 7 with me now. Chapter 7, it says, Now when the wall had been built, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, had been appointed, I gave my brother Hananiah and Hananiah, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem. For he was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And when they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors. Appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some at their guard posts and some in front of their own home. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt uh, yet at that time. And so we see that right here. We see that Nehemiah, he's, he's not only sought to glorify God um, in his life, but he's also seeking to glorify God in his leadership. He's not just glorifying God in his leadership, he's also not stingy with his leadership, right? He's not stingy with his leadership. He appoints middle management here. He appoints a couple other guys to help govern the area. You see, the wall is built, and there's still work to be done. There's no houses yet, but he appoints trusted and qualified leaders, much like we're going we're gonna to be doing like throughout our first years as a church plant, we're going to be developing and investing into and appointing like different leaders to handle different ministries in the church. And I want you to notice something here in verse 2. He says, he was a, 
This leader was a more faithful and God-fearing man than many. That's a qualification for good leadership. What do you need for good and godly leadership? You need faithfulness and you need humility. You need trustworthiness and the quality of being God-fearing. The quality of being God-fearing. You see, a God-fearing person is somebody who's not distracted by other things, but who's wholly devoted to the mission of God. Um, That's why we sing an amazing grace. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace, my fears relieved. You see, the fear of God makes all other fears fade away, and that's why it's a quality of being a good and godly leader. Now what? What does that have to do with us today? Like, what does this passage have to do with us today? You see, Nehemiah, he wasn't the only one who valued the fear of God as an honorable quality. He's not the only one who valued and aspired towards being a God-fearing person. Even Jesus, the Son of God, valued it too. You see, in fact, in a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, speaking of Jesus, it says that his delight, that Jesus' delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Isn't that interesting? His delight, his joy will be in the fear of the Lord. You see, to this day, Jesus has a lot of haters and critics, right? And so do his followers, just like Nehemiah. People say bad things about Christ. They, they spread lies about him. Today, critics question whether Jesus was God or whether his life was real. And even still, just like Nehemiah had to continue his ministry so that God's city could be built, Jesus continued his ministry so that his church could be built. He said he would live perfectly, and he did. He said he would die for sinners on a cross, even to the dismay of his own disciples, and he did. He said he would rise from the grave, defeating sin and death and our great enemy, the devil. And guess what? He did. The tomb is empty. Jesus is alive today. He said he would build his church, and he did. Look around. 2,000 years later, we're on an entirely different continent in this random town called Rancho Santa Margarita, California, singing songs about him, hearing the word about him, celebrating him, worshiping, honoring him in this place, in this little room. He promised to build his church, and he was good on that promise. He did that. He's doing that right now, and that's why we're all here. You see, he's the God who not only gets his work done, but he never fails because he is the Almighty One. You see, and just like Nehemiah was called on a mission, just like Jesus had his mission to build his church, we're called on a mission too. We're called to join Jesus on his mission. Just like Nehemiah had a mission, just like Jesus had a mission, just like they were criticized, we'll get criticized too. You can either buckle under the pressure of that criticism or you can press on to the prize. If you do, God's word says the reward is great and he proved it with the reward of Nehemiah's finished city. He proved it with the victory of Jesus' empty tomb, with the growing and multiplying of his church today. So like I want us as God's people to be encouraged today, 
to be encouraged today. And I want us to leave here with a hope that if you continue in obedience that is humble, that God will honor that and you'll see, and we'll see our lives bear fruit just as Nehemiah did. It'll truly happen because even when we are faithless, God promises that He is faithful. Amen. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. If you would like to learn more about King's Cross Church or make a donation, please visit kx.church. Here at King's Cross, we believe that worship means more than just listening to a sermon, and we encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. For Sunday morning meeting time and location for King's Cross Church, please visit kx.church. Thanks again for listening. 